This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. In Wisconsin, if you're going to order your Old Fashioned or your Manhattan or whatever you were going to drink, you could have it made with bad bourbon or good brandy, rot gut rum or good brandy, crappy vodka or good brandy. What are you going to choose? This is The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I'm Lindsay Christians. And I'm Chris Lay. So COVID has put an undeniable damper on the Wisconsin way of life, which is to say our old-fashioned drinking culture. It's been months and long months since most of us have sidled up to the bar at a local watering hole, much less a supper club. I miss supper clubs. Mm-hmm. Old-fashioned for sure, both literally and figuratively. Wisconsin Cocktails is a new, deeply researched book published by the University of Wisconsin Press, all about the muddled history of Dairyland drinking habits. This week, we decided to talk with Jeanette Hurt, the author of that book, who explained to us why our state specifically loves boozy milkshakes so much. Uh, she also debunked some myths about Corbell and gave us some hope for how we can bounce back once we can return to our neighborhood dives. I am already determined to make one of the Bloody Mary recipes from this book at my next two-person brunch. Give a listen! Jeanette, welcome! Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, this is a beautiful book, first of all. I love the photos. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this book and how you how and why you got started writing it? Well, it goes back a few years. The first incarnation of this book was a book proposal called United Drinks of America that my agent couldn't sell. And the inspiration for that book was of course the fact that here in Wisconsin we have such a rich drinking culture and the brandy old fashioned And one thing I found in researching this book proposal is while there are a lot of quote unquote state specific drinks like uh, the Black Eyed Susan in Maryland is supposedly the state drink of Maryland, but a couple of good friends of mine who are, are either from or currently live in Maryland have never tried the drink. That's not the case here in Wisconsin. And while my agent was shopping that book proposal around, she met an editor who said, well, could she do something about women in cocktails? And so I wrote, ended up writing Drink Like a Woman. But I have written about Wisconsin drinking culture and cocktails, and it's something that I've always been interested in, seen as I live here in Milwaukee, and I'm very familiar with our drinking culture. Three years ago, probably this week, I went to a writer's conference in Chicago, and I signed up to meet with an editor at the University of Wisconsin Press. I didn't have a book idea at the time, but I thought, well, she's a Wisconsin editor, and I'm from Wisconsin, and we're at the Chicago conference. I'll sign up anyway. 
So I ended up meeting this editor and we had this, we, of course, we started talking about my drink like a woman. And then we started talking about the brandy old fashioned. And this editor said, oh, and yeah, our Bloody Marys and our ice cream drinks. And before I knew it, I had a book proposal and a book contract within the next week, which was definitely probably the easiest and most organic <laughs> book I've ever done. And so after I, I outlined it and they said yes, and I met with them and they were just so excited, then I started doing the heavy duty research. And I spent months doing the modern day equivalent of going through newspaper microfiche going back more than 200 years before we were a state to research everything and anything I could about every single cocktail that's in the book. But most importantly, the brandy old fashioned, how we got there, why we drink brandy and why we drink it the way we do. Yeah. So who is the target audience for the book? There are obviously lots of really interesting recipes, but they aren't necessarily the kind of drinks that you would be able to walk into any dive bar, even in Wisconsin, <laughs> and just say, oh, I would like this thing, and, and they will know what you're talking about. It is definitely for both the home and professional enthusiast. One of the things I've always found, whether I've been developing recipes for food or drink, is to make sure that anyone could take a look at it and follow the instructions. And a lot of times when I've worked with bartenders or gotten their recipes, it will list proportions of drinks of the ingredients and then have it shaken or stirred. And, you know, that's fine. If you're a professional, you can look through and say, oh, I know how to make this. This is, this is a fizz. I know what it is. I know how to make it. But if you're a casual enthusiast and you're looking through something and you see a picture that you like, and then you see a recipe, you should be able to follow it. And that's one of the things I did with the recipes is making sure it's spelled out. So I did do that with every recipe so that if you have never made a cocktail, you can, you can open it up and follow the directions and understand how to make it. I also included a note that while certain bartenders and certain distilleries, for example, say you should make this with this particular product, you can substitute and use what is on hand, what's available at your liquor store, or for example, just that you plain like something or don't like something. And I think you should feel okay with that. The other night, uh, my husband made me a Manhattan and he shook it. He, he wasn't paying attention. So he just shook it with ice. And I was like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, oh, it's it's still the same ingredients. It'll be fine. It was not fine. It tasted kind of bad, actually. And I ended up dumping it out. And I, I remember thinking there are these things that seem simple or that we're so familiar with, like a Bloody Mary. Uh, it's like, oh, tomato juice and some spices and a little bit of vodka. Like, what's the big? But it's not as accessible at, at home as you would think it should be. And so one of the things I really liked about this book is that there are very specific recipes for different kinds of Bloody Marys, for example, or ice cream drinks, which, which I'd never thought to make at home, but now seem pretty like accessible. So when you were doing your recipe testing, like, did you, did you test most of these, all of these, some of these, how did your testing process go? 
I tested most of them. Some of them I had to recreate without some of the ingredients because they weren't available to me. They were, mm. or they weren't, they were, they were harder to track down. I wouldn't say that they're not available, but they were definitely harder to track down. Of course, if you use different ingredients or substitute, you may not have the exact taste the bartender or recipe developer had in mind, but it'll be pretty close. And and you should be able to, to follow them. For example, there's a mudslide milkshake in the recipe with Roaring Dan's rum, Goodland Valentine coffee liqueur, and vanilla or chocolate ice cream. Mm. You could make this with using a different coffee liqueur and a different rum. And even if you wanted to, you could probably substitute with caramel ice cream or coffee ice cream. And it would still taste pretty good because the proportions and the instructions are good, but it would be, it would be a slightly different profile. Yeah. One of the things that, that I really like about it is just the amount of historical context that you give to the, the drinks. And speaking of the ice cream drinks, one of the things in there is you mentioned that the ice cream drinks are you know, tied to Wisconsin historically because the blender was invented in Wisconsin. Yes. I love that. I love that so much. I didn't know that. That was great. It's kind of crazy. And it's one of those things I didn't know until I, until I started researching and asking the questions. And then you dive deep into blender history, which there is a thing, which I didn't realize. I love that. My mother-in-law loved Brandy Alexander's. Um, that was her thing. She just loved them. And I always would get them at supper clubs. And I and I have to say, one of the things I'm missing so much during the pandemic is supper clubs. And I just, I miss going to them. Uh, I was wondering, do you have a way of ordering your old fashioned? And do you have a place that that makes them particularly well that you love? Well, I think any of, um, if I order an old fashioned, usually I order it I, it depends on my mood, brandy or bourbon, but usually brandy. And I usually order it press. I prefer with club soda. I don't need it to be super sweet. And I prefer it if you have a stepped up cherry, whether it's Luxardo, whether it's a Door County cherry from Sequist or Filthy Cherries or homemade. What I do at my house is I, this summer, for example, there was a Door County orchard who was delivering Door County fruit for a few weeks this summer. And I bought up a whole bunch of cherries. And one of the things I did was I pit more than a cup of cherries and threw them in a mason jar and topped them with brandy. If that isn't a perfect garnish for an old fashioned, I, I don't know that there is one. Do you know how long that will last? Asking for my own bar. <laughs> It's in my refrigerator. It will last for at least a year, but I don't think they're going to last that long in my refrigerator. I should probably throw out the ones in my basement. Yeah. It, in terms of places where I would get a really good old fashioned, in terms, I live in Milwaukee and I live in Bayview. I would say The Lost Whale, Stella's Cocktail Dive, which is a new bar that just opened up this past summer. It's a dive bar that's actual, also a, actually a cocktail bar. 
And um, Brian West, who's one of the owners of the bar, he's the former publisher of the Alcoholmanac, and he was a consultant in the industry, and he got involved in this bar. So he makes a really, really good old-fashioned spinoff called The Sugar St. Clair, which is in my book. And he does not only offer it for sale there, but he bottles them to go, which I think is pretty cool. And then there's a new tiki bar called Ula Ulo, which makes really good drinks. And those are all very close in my neighborhood where I would go if I, if I could right now. And then the other places are the local distilleries because there are three of them here in Milwaukee and they're all very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, being able to go out um, with the pandemic. Do you see any kind of lasting effect that that's going to have specifically on Wisconsin as a drinking culture hub? I mean, are, are any of these, uh, you know, legendary companies potentially going to, you know, under threat of going under or uh, anything along those lines? Is there any any sort of Wisconsin way of life that is uh, being threatened? Well, I would say each and every bar and restaurant out there is struggling. Even if they're making it, usually what the owners have told me is we're just trying to survive until we can thrive again. And I, I do think when I've gone out and I've gone out to patio or I've stayed outside, I've seen an evolution with that, for example, in my neighborhood at random, the second oldest cocktail bar in Milwaukee, possibly the second oldest in the state, now has this gorgeous mid-century modern 50s-style patio where you can go and drink their, their classic cocktails outside. And it's usually been packed. I haven't actually gone by there at a time when when it hasn't been packed. So I haven't actually been to visit that patio, but it looks really cool. And I walk past it with my dog almost every day. And um, I would say bartenders and restaurateurs and owners are trying are becoming very creative with what they're trying to do. Like I said, Stella's, they're bottling cocktails to go for people. And I know the same with some distilleries. Twisted Path is bottling it to go. Great Lakes is putting together cocktail kits. And they also have a, a patio that has been pretty popular this summer. So people are trying to do things and trying to innovate. And the ones that are going to be able to do it, they're going to survive. But I do think there are some places that are closing. I don't think we've had as many closings as, say, San Francisco or even Chicago. And I also think there is a certain rebellious nature we have, especially when it comes to drinking. If you go back historically, and my book touches on this in different chapters, but in Prohibition, nobody stopped drinking here in Wisconsin. And the federal agents called it the Wild West, which is exactly what our governor called us when people were flocking to the bars. There is that kind of, well, we drink no matter what. And I'm not saying I endorse this attitude, 
but I def- who hasn't seen it? And I definitely think there are some bar owners and restaurateurs who are doing it as safe as possible, and they're being very responsible. But I also know that there are some that aren't, and I would be very surprised if there weren't some places that never shut down during the quarantine. You know, we have a lot of small towns, and I'm I'm almost positive. I don't know for sure, but I'm almost positive. I'm sure there's some taverns and and corner bars that that never shut down and just sort of operated in a speakeasy capacity because, you know, that's what we did. And that's one yeah. of the reasons we have this history with supper clubs because people were already used to driving to to go places to drink. They would drive and make it a destination to go someplace to eat and drink when it was legal to do so. And one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is one of the reasons why we have supper clubs and one of the reasons why we had so many speakeasies is because of the other side of our our state. We're America's Dairyland and farmers needed good rural systems of roads to get their milk to be processed. So I think that's also kind of interesting, that sort of hand-in-hand history of, of dairy and drinking, which also comes together in the ice cream drinks. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of drinks in here that have dairy in them. But I, I loved the – you get a little bit into the history of things like, you know, a Tom and Jerry, um, but also the, the, the beer back for a Bloody Mary. I wonder if you can – were there any of those kinds of stories in reporting out this book that sort of surprised and delighted you as you found the historical context of them? Oh, definitely. One of my favorite things was discovering um, a Red Robin. And that was through the late Marcy Skronsky, who at the time was, the, I think, the oldest bartender in the state, if not the country, if not the world, because at 93, she was still bartending. And they had, she had inherited this antique sign, which she inherited from her late father-in-law, who had gotten it from a closed bar from the the turn of the previous century. And I remember seeing that sign and asking her, Marcy, what what is a red robin? And she's like, that's beer and tomato juice which just by itself doesn't sound too great. (laughs) And you could get one for 15 cents along with a slow gin fizz and a Tom Collins and a whiskey sour and a gin buck and a highball. So we were drinking tomato juice with beer before we were drinking actual Bloody Marys, which I find interesting. Mm -hmm. And my favorite story about Tom and Jerry's is It was a drink of the 1800s and it came into vogue and it started out in New England and it spread across the country. And like so many drinks here in Wisconsin, we liked it and it never left. And one of my absolute favorite stories was about a bar being raided in Milwaukee. I think it was called Doc's Saloon. 
and the feds came in and everybody went out the back door, but there was a steaming bowl of Tom and Jerry's at the back. I love it. It's just, it's that kind of crazy thing. And then if you, one of the other things that I found really interesting in researching all of the different cocktails is when you're doing a search in old newspaper articles, some of the things that come up are police blotters. Like a guy orders a, a brandy cocktail and then tries to make off with the money from behind the bar. Or someone who worked for somebody in a rich household stole 12 bottles of brandy and tobacco. <laughs> I love finding that kind of stuff in the archive. It is really, it was really interesting for me. Also, it was seeing the different liquor ads over the years. And it was really interesting to me in researching the ice cream drinks, how it was a requirement for bartenders when they were being hired at different places, must have knowledge of ice cream drinks. Huh. That was in so many classified ads. That's Funny and kind of random. I I found one uh, that you found at the Capital Times, um, <laughs> and because of course uh, it's a tomato tomato buttermilk pickup. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. It's four cups of buttermilk, two cups of chilled tomato juice, salt, yeah. and Tabasco or Worcestershire, and it's uh, from 1963. Irvin Kreisman. Uh, officials taste them. Bravely non-alcoholic cocktails feature of county dinner. I just, I love it. <laughs> Chris is like, no. I, yeah. I mean, that that just sounds <laughs> like like the ultimate old man grandpa drink. Like that's that's up there with like <laughs> like, like like a rusty nail of like things that <laughs> you know, like like. <laughs> yeah, I. Well, and what I also think is funny, these were also paired with cheese and Alice of Dairyland was at that event. And that was definitely the tomato buttermilk just sounds pretty awful. But it's it's funny you bring this up because I, I brought my book with me when I got my hair cut. And this woman who worked with my beautician saw it and she's like, ooh, that sounds good. It takes all <laughs> kinds, you know. 20 something. And I'm like, okay, I thought it was absolutely disgusting, but somebody else really liked it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I gotta wonder if, has, has she ever had just buttermilk <laughs> or is she thinking, well, I've, I've had buttermilk biscuits. That sounds like a nice kind of a savory type thing. And no, <laughs> just straight buttermilk is unpleasant. <laughs> I, I would tend to agree with you. And and the addition of tomato juice and Worcestershire and horseradish. Oh. <laughs> that's oh. a, yeah, like like the morning after kind of a yeah that that sounds like a like a home remedy hangover cure. That's <laughs> what that sounds like. It was definitely one of the most disgusting recipes <laughs> I found in my research. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. And you did a, you really did a ton of research. Uh, one of the things that you kind of weighed into pretty early on in the book is exposing some of the uh, 
some of the the rumors about Corbell and how that you know became tied to old fashions and Wisconsin and the various historical moments that that played a key role, even all the way up to 2008? Well, what I find interesting is it's it's a story that has been told and retold, and I was even guilty of retelling it in a story I wrote for the Tales of the Cocktail website. And it is one of those things that sounds really good. But when I was researching my book, I, I set out to prove it true. And the one thing, I think the first thing that struck me was I, I was like, okay, so if this happened, then there's got to be some mention in Wisconsin newspapers somewhere that right after, because the fair was such a big event in the country and so many people went to it. And I thought, well, let's take a look at this. And the first thing that keyed me in that this is not how it happened was an article in the Milwaukee Journal. It was in 1895 or 1896. And it basically talked about this new cocktail revolution that was going on and how the young German men, for them, beer wasn't good enough. They wanted something more. And this story went into detail about what the popular drinks were at the saloons. And they had a, a brandy cocktail called the Bracer, but the most popular cocktail at the time was called the Old Fashioned. And it's an old fashioned, just the way everybody else in the country drinks them. Whiskey, usually rye, bitters, sugar, that's it. And that just, was to me astonishing that once upon a time we drank old fashions like everybody else. <laughs> so my next question was, okay, what happened from 1896 and now? So I continued to delve into research and the actual story isn't as romantic as Corbell being at the Columbia Exposition. That was the other thing. I found an actual book put out by the state of California about their pavilion in the World's Fair. It was a complete accounting of everything that was displayed and who came. And yeah, Corbell had brandy, but so did some 20 other wineries. And some of them had four and five types of brandy. So that was another interesting thing which told me this isn't quite true. And every time you call somebody at Corbell, they'll say, well, we can't confirm that. So they won't deny it, but they won't, they won't, they can't in good conscience say, well, they don't have records. Well, maybe they don't have records or maybe it's because Corbell stopped producing brandy during prohibition and didn't start up until the 1960s. And we were drinking brandy old fashions before the 1960s. So the actual story when I finally had my own eureka moment, it was this guy who was interviewed. There was a big Sunday newspaper magazine story about why do we drink brandy? And they talked to this old timer, this guy who had been in the liquor distribution since 1937. And this was back in 1975. He was being interviewed and he said, well, yeah, we drank more brandy than everybody else, but two times nothing is still nothing. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, that's true. 
so what happened? And he said, back post-World War II, when there was a lot of bad booze going around, and part of this is because distilleries voluntarily stopped production of booze to ship grain to feed Europe. Hmm. And plus, we didn't have as much. We didn't, because of the prohibition before the war, we didn't have this stockpile. So there was a lot of bad booze going around. And at that time, some Wisconsin distributors got a hold of this big cache of aged brandy from Christian Brothers, and they bought up the whole thing. So in Wisconsin, if you're going to order your Old Fashioned or your Manhattan or whatever you were going to drink, you could have it made with bad bourbon or good brandy, rot gut rum or good brandy, crappy vodka or good brandy. What are you going to choose? Well, you're going to choose brandy. And then you're going to forget that's why you started drinking brandy and grandma drank brandy and your parents drank brandy and you don't know why. And you think it's this kind of phenomenon like UFOs. It just happens, but we don't know why. When it actually goes back to at one time we got good brandy. And then what I noticed is I traced back and I found another newspaper article, a wham doodle, which I love the name. (laughs) This little funny bit of news that talked about a Midwestern liquor distributorship buying up all this brandy. I think they said something enough brandy to sink a flotilla or float a flotilla or something like that. It was really funny. <laughs> so that confirmed what I found in the other article. And then what happened in the 50s and 60s is brandy makers started advertising to us. And all of a sudden, you Mm. see all these things like, try the Milwaukee cocktail, just like the Manhattan, but with brandy. And these goofy things. And again, people, why do we drink brandy? I don't know. It's what we do. Yeah. I love that you spend some time not only on, on history, but you also start taking a look at newer trends, which I thought was great including like this, this new push in recent years. I mean, I guess it was pre-pandemic, so I don't know if that's how the trend has been affected by that, but there was a push for the last few years toward non-alcoholic and low alcoholic cocktails. Like there was this like session cocktail movement, you know, where you could have three instead of two or one or whatever. I feel like with the pandemic, maybe we're all drinking a little bit more. (laughs) Um, But I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the the newer things that you were putting, like new Wisconsin cocktails and also the the NA chapter there too. Well, I think non-alcoholic is a trend that isn't going to go away Hmm. for several reasons, but one of which is there are certain people who just can't drink for whatever reason and certain people who choose not to drink because they're pregnant or because they're on antibiotics, or because they're the designated driver, or because simply, you know, they've had two cocktails, and if they have a third one, they're they're going to get pulled over. So they know that they, but they don't want to stop drinking. So what I've seen, good bartenders can make non-alcoholic drinks just as exciting and just as layered and rich and tasty as alcohol 
cocktails. And to do a good non-alcoholic cocktail, you have to have even more mad skills because booze can cover up a lot of bad or inferior ingredients. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. true. So if you're going to do it, you have to start, number one, with with really good raw materials. And the whole focus of my chapter on non-alcoholic cocktails is the rich ingredients that you can find that find here locally, like June berries, for example. You can make shrubs with them, and then you can make these exciting, interesting cocktails. Now, the one thing I also include a note in my chapter on non-alcoholic cocktails is you can always add alcohol to the non-alcoholic drinks, which is what used to happen at my my tiki parties in my backyard. My husband and I, pre-pandemic, would usually once a year throw a big tiki party in our backyard. And usually the virgin cocktails were sacrificed by the end of the evening. Sacrificed. Yes. I love that. They, they were. Remember parties? <laughs> Remember those? We used to have them? Oh, my God. But usually what happened is my my friends who are drinking the non-alcoholic cocktails, they usually went home earlier than the ones that didn't. And you oh, by the yeah. end of the night, people started uh, mixing things into the non-alcoholic. So I include instructions how to do it better than my husband's college buddies. I, I do not recommend their concoctions, by the way. Um, I, I do not consider most of their college, quote unquote, punches to be palatable. But you can you can take any non-alcoholic drink and add a a liquor or spirit of your choice to make it alcoholic and it would still taste good. The other trend, as you were talking about, besides non-alcoholic or low alcoholic or session cocktails, are the new sort of cocktails that I would say Wisconsin bartenders are trying to get to become classics. Now, I think it's the dream of most mixologists and bartenders, if they really care about their craft, to come up with something that is so fantastic that other bartenders start imitating it and and it becomes a thing elsewhere. I haven't seen any of these cocktails quite become a thing outside of their own, you know, cocktail bar itself. You know, if you go to any good cocktail bar, any place in our state, they will have signature cocktails that they can't take off the menu. I know, like, for example, at Lost Whale, they really wanted to make every single drink seasonal and to change things, but they would try to take some things off their menu and then people would get mad at them because that's what they wanted to drink. So, you know, I think that's the first step that you come up with a drink you can't take off your menu. The next thing is to people like it so much that they request it at other places and that it spreads. I think one of the more interesting um, modern classics would be the Cosmopolitan. And there's several stories about when it happened, but it, it, it dates back to the 80s, early 90s, but then it really gained a second life when Sex in the City, Samantha and her friends started drinking it on HBO, and then everybody was drinking it. And that's another thing here in Wisconsin. People started drinking sweet martinis, 
Mm, yes. And they never stopped. Not only that, but people who come to vacation in Wisconsin end up drinking a lot of our sweet martinis, which I think is really interesting because I think of the the Cosmo as a drink in the early 2000s predating the modern mixology classic cocktail movement and revival. But it it's another one of those things. It never left. It's like we like something and it sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is great. I have to say the the cocktails that I most want to make, um, there's two. Uh, one is are some of the ones that involve cold brew coffee because I always have cold brew coffee on hand. But a lot of the coffee cocktails also call for Amaro and like things like that are that are bitter. And so I'm like, you know what? I just I need to like stock up. And the other thing is the ones that call for uh, cranberry liqueur, which just looks delicious. And I think I could sub in for a lot of other cocktail recipes too. Something like a, you know, a Door County cranberry liqueur sounds incredibly versatile and you're not just buying it to use it for like one ounce in a cocktail. You could keep using it for other stuff. Oh, you can. And I would say there's the the Goodland Door County cherry and the Goodland cranberry liqueurs. You can mm. use both of them and they are phenomenal in so many different things. What I find interesting is the story behind Guy Rehorse, you know, First of all, he created an orange liqueur because you need an orange liqueur for so many different drinks. So many. It, it's a basic liqueur spirit. You can throw it in so many things. But then he wanted to do something because we make more, we produce more cranberries than any place else in the country. But the problem is he would try to make a cranberry liqueur. And it had this bitter, nasty aftertaste. And it took him and his team a while to figure out what they needed to do to distill it correctly. And I think they have a fantastic product with that. And then, of course, you know, Door County Cherry, you could throw that with a cold brew coffee and do something really interesting. You could also do the cranberry, but I think the Door County Cherry and a cold brew coffee. And then you'd probably want to pick maybe one other spirit of some sort. It could be really interesting. Yeah, that sounds delicious. <laughs> so where can people find you and follow you? If they want to continue to follow your work, um, where, can they, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at by Jeanette Hurt. They can also find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook author page, which is my name. And you can also find me on my website, which is just my name. It's JeanetteHurt.com. You can pretty much find me one of those three places. Mm -hmm. Well, the the last question that I have is what would be your desert island cocktail? Ooh, that is so hard. Heaven forbid that (laughs) you would have to commit to one. But if you did. Well, I would want something with some versatility. And if I'm on on a desert island, it is probably pretty hot. So I would probably go with a French 75. Or it would be a gin and sparkling wine-based cocktail. Because I think that would probably cheer my spirits up, something bubbly. Mm Mm-hmm. If I'm 
out there in the hot sun. Also not too sweet, but definitely fun. So that's probably what I would pick. Wonderful. That sounds delicious. It is. And there are some recipes in my book for that cocktail or variations thereof. There's one called, I think, the French, uh, it might be the French 608 for the 608 area code. It's a funny name, but it is quite lovely. Well, that sounds great. We are in the 608, so we got to represent. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It has been a lot of fun talking with you, and I've enjoyed laughing. And thank you so much (laughs) for your support of my book, because I'm also really trying to change the story of why we drink the old fashions. I'd like the true story to get out. I love it. Let let us be of service. (laughs) Definitely. And maybe one day when the pandemic is all over, we can get together for a real cocktail in a real bar. Fingers crossed. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Patrick Christians composed our music. Natalie Yar edits the show. We are dropping episodes every other week, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can, as always, find us individually on Twitter and together as a show on Facebook. Go to captimes.com for more food and drink news. My recent cover story looks at how restaurants in Madison are preparing for the winter with virtual brands and these cool plastic igloos. We've got a few new ways to get you out of a cooking rut as well if you're making the same things over and over these days. And if you like movies, uh, you might enjoy a podcast that I co-host for Lee Enterprises uh, with some journalists in Iowa. And the name of that podcast is Just To Be Nominated. You can find it out there on your pod player of choice. I am Lindsay Christians, Cap Times food editor. And I am Chris Lay. Buttermilk and tomato juice cocktail? No thank you, Sayer. (laughs) It it never just rolls right off. (laughs) (laughs) Our wish for you this week is an in-home Bloody Mary bar, overflowing with all the fixins. Cheers! Finally, okay. We done did it. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.